Coming up on Philosophy Talk, global justice. Why worry about global justice when we haven't achieved justice in our own nation? Well, there are rich and poor nations and rich and poor citizens around the world, and that seems to lots of people unjust. Justice is fairness. The same rules apply to all. Well, first of all, does it even make any sense to talk about justice on a global, transnational scale? Justice is equality. Everyone gets the same share. And second, even if you think it does make sense, how, how do you bring that about? I want to see my ambassador. Easily done. He's in the next cell. Where do our duties to citizens of other nations begin and end? Achieving global justice. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, global justice and human rights. Well, can I feel the way about global injustice that the Supreme Court's Potter Stewart felt about hardcore pornography? Oh, I don't, that's a strange analogy, John. What, what, did he really like it or really hate it or what? What are you getting at? Well, that's beside the point. What he said was that he really knew it when he saw it but he didn't know how to define it. That's how I feel about global injustice, disparities in income, famine in a world awash with food, genocide, ethnic cleansing, dozens of other things. They strike me as clear cases of global injustice. But when it comes to defining a concept of justice and injustice that makes sense in a global setting, I'm at a loss. Well, I don't, I don't quite see why you're at a loss. It's just the absence of all those disparities and inequality that you talked about. It goes Go back to John Rawls, who thought of justice as fairness, right? I mean, people deserve equality. They deserve equality of treatment, equality of access to important goods and services, political uh, equality. A little bit of inequality is okay, John Rawls said, if it if it makes a difference to everybody, if it makes it even the least well-off better off than they would be. Why not just think of global justice that way? Well, justice is fairness is a great idea, and, and I can get a start that way. I mean, sometimes we say life is unfair, and we clearly have global unfairness and inequality in that sense. All the things I mentioned. So if global justice is global fairness, I guess it's clear we have global injustice. So what's the problem about defining global justice then? Well, the problem is that philosophers like Rawls are basically talking about the fairness or unfairness of a system of laws, not about life in general. We might say our constitution is just or unjust, but there isn't a constitution for the world. So how do we apply that concept of justice? Maybe global justice or global injustice is just a metaphor. Global injustice is just a fancy way of saying life sucks for many people around the world. I mean, I see your point. I mean, life does suck for many people around the world, but I don't really think things are quite as hopeless as you make it sound. We can look around the globe and say that various systems of laws that people are governed by are more or less unjust. That's There's clearly a lot of global injustice in that sense because so many countries are governed by a completely just systems, but others are governed by wildly crazy unjust systems of laws. Well, you're right about all that. But it seems to me there's a lot of global injustice over and above that. Example, the laws of India may well be as just as the laws of Norway, 
But it seems unfair that Norwegians, with all their fish and oil and land and clear skies, not to mention good looks, enjoy a very high standard of living. And Indians, some of whom are also very good looking, by and large do not. How does the concept of justice's fairness of a system of laws get at that sort of injustice? Unless we really have a system of laws for the whole world. Well, and even and I mean, the very idea of a systems of laws for the whole world runs up against another problem: the problem of relativism. I mean, does it really make sense for members of one culture to morally criticize the system of governance of another culture? I mean, we think equality of individuals is really important in the West. In the Chinese tradition, I'm told that value is eclipsed by the needs of groups in a in a way we Americans wouldn't approve of. Yeah, exactly right. For example. Does it make sense for us to say, as many people do, that the Chinese limitations on family size, so that you're only supposed to have one child, to say that those limitations are unjust, the violation of rights? Well, it may make perfect sense from the point of view of their concepts and traditions. Well, like you said, you know, we know glo global injustice when we see it, and we sometimes feel, in addition, a moral responsibility to do something about it. But, you know, right now we could use some expert help in defining concepts, I think. Lucky for us, we have Helen Stacy from Stanford's Law School to help us out here. We'll start with what we know when we see it. That is, some clear examples of human rights tragedies around the world and what's been done and not been done about them. Then we'll try to get more philosophical and more practical at the same time. What sorts of interventions are appropriate and by whom? And what is the philosophical basis of this appropriateness? When is it permissible to use force? Given the pluralistic nature of human conceptions of right and wrong, how can intervention in somebody else's affairs ever be justified? And then we'll try to diagnose the lack of success of the international community in preventing and ending human rights abuses. But first, let's turn to our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, who found a man who has experienced severe human rights abuses firsthand. She files this report. It may have taken 13 years to arrest the Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic, but the war in the former Yugoslavia seems like yesterday for Fahim Fazlik, a Bosnian Muslim refugee in California. He stole 16 years of my life. There is no, no price for that. Mr. Fazlik worked as a labor lawyer in Priador, a city of about 50,000 in the western part of Bosnia near the Croatian border. His wife worked as a lawyer also, and the couple had two small children. Fahim says they had a good life. It was a really nice job. We made good money. We had a nice apartment, uh, car, spending time on the Adriatic Sea, you know, traveling around. It was a really, really good time, you know, and I just can't forget that, you know. I'm still thinking about those days today. Everything changed for Mr. Fazlik and his family in 1992. As Tito's socialist Yugoslavia dissolved, Serbian nationalist forces began a war to form a new Serbian state, with borders that included land in Slovenia, Croatia, and Bosnia. Serbian leaders intended the new state to be quote-unquote pure, Serbians only. Ethnic cleansing of Muslims and Croats began. Army, then paramilitary troops, police, took power in my city. This very same day, they started putting people into concentration camps and put me in concentration camp called Omarska. Two weeks after, they took my wife too. 
it was a man camp, but there was around 36 women. Uh, they used them during the day to work in the kitchen and during the night for their own pleasure. Omerska, 15 kilometers from Priador, drew international outrage when journalists managed to visit the camp and publish pictures of emaciated men held behind razor wire. Once a day we had a lunch and we had a minute, just one minute to eat. And 24 hours a day, they just think about uh, the worst way to kill someone. One night they killed 168. And it was killing all the time, killing and beating, nothing else. Bowing to international pressure, Serbs closed the camp. Fahim and his wife were transferred to another camp before being released to a transit center on the condition that they and their family leave Bosnia for good. When I today think about those days, I can tell you that 90% of my friends were Serbs. I am Muslim. But I am not uh, right Muslim, you know. I never prayed, I never went to mosque. I don't know how to do that, you know. And as I said, 90% of my friends were Serbs, and that's why I'm so surprised that they did that to us. Both Fahim and his wife have testified about what happened to them in front of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. He bristles at the sentences of five, six, or seven years handed down to lesser players in the war, camp guards and the like. He was surprised at Karadzic's arrest and expects to be called to testify in The Hague when the trial begins later this month. What would justice look like to Fahim Fazlik? Uh, unfortunately, there is no death sentence, you know, but there is a life in prison, and I think that he deserved not just once, five or ten life sentences. And I hope that this trial will send that message to others, Karadzic and Mladic, that it's not worth and that they one day will be punished for that. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.